Hello, and welcome to Avatar the Podcast. We are your hosts, Acorn Bandit and Booster Greg. And guess what this is? Uh, is it the last episode of book two? It's the last episode of book two. Oh, man. I feel like I'm at this crossroads. Of destiny? Of my destiny with book two. (laughs) (laughs) We are, of course, talking about book two, episode 20, Crossroads of Destiny. Or as we like to call it. Aang's shocking lesson. Wah, wah, wah. (laughs) This episode was written by Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Canesco and directed by Giancarlo Volpe. Mm Mm-hmm. I just find it so appropriate that Michael and Brian wrote this episode. Once the credits rolled, I was like, yes, that is why it was so good. Because the creators stepped in and tied up all of our loose knots and gave us so much emotional character impact in the hearts. Yes. I loved this episode. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, Actually, really quickly, just so everyone knows, this was actually originally supposed to be directed by Lauren McMullen. But she left the show at this point so yeah uh, michael and brian kind of talked about how they had to kind of step up and take over some delegations and they say that they had some free time left over but they didn't really have free time it was just more time to do other things because this was the end of book two so a lot of stuff was wrapped up so it was was kind of interesting to see that and i'm kind of bummed that lauren mcmullen left the show but she probably went on to better better and brighter things in her life i know yeah I'm sitting here being like, oh, that's sad. But bye, Lauren. Have a good career. And this is like over 10 years ago. Yeah. She's, she's done many, many things since this. Yes, I'm absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, are we ready to jump in? Uh, yes. But before we jump in really quickly, I do want to touch upon something. We got a couple emails in and people, uh, wonderful people, beautiful people were just like, how dare you not choose Toph? <laughs> as the MVP of last episode. She only invented metal bending. And whoops. <laughs> yeah, I do want to say I think that was a little bit of an oversight on our part, but I think I was just personally so enthralled with with Ang's journey so far and everything that he's been doing that I was almost blinded to that singular <laughs> moment where Toph literally invents a subgenre or subcategory of bending. Also, in our defense, we have given MVP to Toph how many true. times at this point? Yes. And she has her own pin that we designed. Yeah. So that is an excellent point. <laughs> we weren't trying to belittle, pun intended, Toph because she's so she's so small. You all get that, right? Her achievements there. But sometimes I think we also are just like, well, we said Toph so many times. I don't think we can say Toph again because I feel like every episode would just be tough we even made a role about it yeah yeah characters who win mvps for seasons even we can't give them the mvp again but that's true yeah we're giving the mvp to characters for specific episodes but we, we felt like Toph had been given enough love and she was being very busy being full of herself and <laughs> yeah riding the earth wave of her own success so to Ooh, speak nice i like that I like not only the imagery but <laughs> it's all good it's great but yeah i just wanted to i just wanted to bring that out being like yeah that probably should have been at least a mention in there and we're sorry but we love Toph so so much and i feel like the next episode that we're going to do which everyone knows is going to be our book two recap episode it's just going to be an hour and some change of acorn and i going back and forth just saying Toph, 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 until we're going to say it so much that it's just going to lose all meaning 
It's going to be wild. Yeah, it's just yeah. going to be like a collection of letters yes. at that point. So prepare yourself for that. <laughs> Speaking of the pin, though, we have gotten so many emails and tweets of people who have bought their Toph pin. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing with us. I've been retweeting on the Twitter account when people tweet at us, but we've also seen the images, uh, the pictures sent to us via email. So we hope you love the pin. Thank you for sharing yeah. with us. We're so excited. Yeah. And Greg is also thinking of our design for book three. I'm so torn. I thought I had it down and then we got an email saying it should be this other thing. And now I'm just like, I think it was an email. Maybe it was something. I don't know. Someone yelled at me somewhere from the internet. And now my brain is going <laughs> somewhere else. So it's a hard at work time. Out. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, without further ado, let's jump into our finale. This episode opens on the plains outside of Ba Sing Se, where an ostrich horse is drinking water from a river. The serene moment is broken when Appa flies past, carrying a worried Sokka and Aang, who are coming to Katara's rescue. Aang recently saw a vision of Katara in restraints while he was with Guru Patik at the Eastern Air Temple, and has picked up Sokka so they can come to her aid. They hear a rumbling sound from nearby and turn to see Toph, earth surfing, across the plains toward the wall. Dipping close to her, Sokka asks if she needs a ride. Toph startles at the sound of Sokka's voice and tumbles off of her earth mound. <laughs> I love that moment because they just hear something and look over and they're like, oh, Toph, what, what are you doing here? And what are you doing to the ground? Yeah. Why are you riding on Appa when you can just surf the earth? That sounds so good. I love that rhyme in that term. Surf the earth. Earth surfing. Yeah. Is that like a band name? Surf the earth. It should be. I feel like. Love it. I feel like Toph and the Earth Surfers is, should be a band name. Oh, oh <laughs> Toph and the Earth Surfers. That is officially the name of Toph's band. There we go. Yeah, wait, hold on, hold on. Would you say they're a heavy metal band? Oh, wow. Or, or, wow. or, or are they uh Or an alternative rock? rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either one. Either one. Terrible. Both even. Yes. Definitely not new metal. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> The scene changes to an underground chamber where Azula, who has been placed in charge of the Dai Li by Long Feng, addresses the Dai Li forces about the upcoming coup. Their plan is to simultaneously take out the Earth King and each of the five generals in the Council of Five in order to seize power. Long Feng has placed you in my command while we overthrow the government, she tells them. If I sense any disloyalty, any hesitation, any weakness at all, I will snuff it out. That is all. Azula dismisses the Dai Li who leave the cavern. What's really funny about this scene, Azula singles out a man with a scar on his face. Yes. That's the man that Iroh captures later in the episode and gets him to squeal. What a handy scar helps us identify this uh, random Dai Li agent, right? It also kind of shows that Azula knows that he's a squealer. She must. So she's she has like, that kind of sense. Yeah. So she was really picking on him for a reason, not just randomly, which really kind of goes to show you the intellect and the ability to read people that she kind of like has. Right. Uh, she also kind of lucked into the daily. If you think about it, the daily uh, in the director's commentary, Brian and Mike touched upon the fact that they just want to stay in power by whatever means necessary. The only loyalty they have is to themselves and not necessarily Long mm. Fang. So when you have a group of people that are like that, it's very easy to step in and dethrone the king or the leader and assume that position. There's also a bit of a mental warfare going on between Long Fang and Azula in this, which is 
almost kind of similar to what we saw with Zhao and Iroh, but a lot less subtle and a lot more aggressive because neither of these characters have a respect for the other. Yeah. So it was really cool. Wow. Yeah. That's so good. And you know, I'm looking forward to the books about Kyoshi because Kyoshi is the one who founded the Dai Li. And she founded oh, wow. them specifically to protect the cultural heritage of Ba Sing Se. So what you just said about them being only loyal to themselves yeah. makes sense because they're not loyal to the Earth King or any one leader. They're loyal to the cultural heritage. So they will uphold that by whatever means necessary. I don't think they even are right now in this point in time. I think it's a, a matter of this group got perverted over time in different leaderships and one lesson was twisted into something completely yeah. different. because. They are loyal to themselves, but they're not loyal to really a way of life. They just want to stay in power. They just want to like be the ones who rule, essentially. Yeah, because cultural heritage is subjective, right? Yes. Yeah. It doesn't really leave room or actually, I guess it's it's subjective because even with modernity, even with advances and with modern times, they can still claim whatever cultural heritage they're trying to protect, you know? Yeah, it's a it's I think it's also picking and choosing which parts of the cultural heritage that they want to exactly. survive. And that depends on, I guess, who's leading or who is uh, or what the group majority wants. Yep, exactly. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Azula joins May and Tai Lee nearby, who is pouring tea. Nice speech, Azula. It was pretty and poetic, but also scary in a way, Tai Lee tells her. Yeah, I thought you were going to make one guy pee his pants, May adds. <laughs> Scar guy. Scar guy. Azula doesn't acknowledge their comments, but instead addresses the loose ends they still need to tie. The Avatar and her brother and uncle. The scene shifts to the front entrance of the palace grounds, where Uncle and Zuko step out of the carriage for one of Uncle's proudest moments, serving tea to the Earth King. Many times I imagined myself here, at the threshold of this palace, he says, but I always thought I would be here as a conqueror. Instead, we are the Earth King's personal guests here to serve him tea. Destiny is a funny thing. His nephew smiles proudly next to him. It sure is, Uncle. This killed me. Uncle Iroh is so happy about this. This is what he's wanted his whole life, to live a quiet, peaceful life making tea. Yeah. He gets to make tea as a living, and he's granted the best honor being able to make tea for the earth king mm. meanwhile the whole time we know that that's not the case yeah he's having this whole like inner epiphany moment where he's just like wow i've come such a long way in my life from wanting to kill the king to serving him tea and this is the greatest honor i've ever had and this is wonderful and i want to share this only with you zuko and meanwhile yeah. the other side of the door Zula's just like yes fall into my trap <laughs> Finger steeple. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, man. Poor, oh, poor no. Iroh. Mike and Brian also confirmed that Iroh was a much different man when he was younger. He's a lot more ambitious and a lot more cutthroat. So mm. I think that he was probably a lot more like Zhao when he was a younger yeah. man. And after losing his son and after, you know, the siege of Ba Sing Se, he really just mellowed out and just kind of like started being a little more self-aware and a yeah. little a little more i guess wise i think that one big moment is what really turned him around yeah and i oh god i love the writing for ira because going through season 3 we learned so many of the things that he did 
yeah. after being a general and trying to lay siege to Ba Sing Se. So yes, he loses his son. He fails in his siege of Ba Sing Se. But then after that, he goes off and learns a lot. We kind of see a peek into this during bitter work when he's giving Zuko the lesson about the different styles of bending and how yeah. you can pull concepts from different styles. I think he really goes on like a pilgrimage of his self, his identity after being a general in the Fire Nation uh, military. Yeah, for sure. I personally love the person he has become and I oh, yeah. would totally watch a sideshow about Iroh. I would, yeah, I would watch a side seven seasons of Iroh. Whole seven seasons, whole just seven Iroh seasons. all the time. All Iroh all the time. One episode is just him brewing tea. Actually, someone That'd online, really cool. forgive me, I forget who said this. It was someone on Twitter. Yeah. Suggested a show for children set in the tea shop. And every episode was like a moral lesson about life delivered from Iroh, but like through the course of like serving customers tea. And that sounds precious. And I would watch the heck out of that. I think that was the link I sent you, wasn't it? Or did was someone it else you send who sent it to me? I think I DM'd it to you, yeah. See, Acorn doesn't remember when I send her things. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Acorn that sounds Acorn has familiar. half a brain right now. <laughs> and I have another half. Together, we have one brain <laughs> of two people. <laughs> Sad, but kind of true. <laughs> this is where we are right now. Okay. It's a good thing that we have one episode left in the, in the book. Yes, yes. Yes. And then yeah. our recap. Yes. Anyway, needless to say, we are so excited for the new studio and being able to cover all of the extra content because there is so much to explore in this world. And even if it's just like a kid's show about tea in a tea shop mm -hmm. or an epic saga following the redemption of Azula, like I'm just I'm ready for everything. Mm -hmm. On their way into the city on Appa, Toph asks Aang how his training went with the guru, asking him if he mastered the Avatar state. Aang flashes back on his time with Guru Patik in the Guru's words of warning when he ran away. If you leave now, you won't be able to go into the Avatar state at all. Aang turns to his friends with forced positivity. I'm great. It went great with the Guru. I completely <laughs> mastered the Avatar state. Nothing left to learn here. Nothing new. Yeah. <laughs> he laughs nervously and looks down, knowing full well this is a big fat lie. In the royal palace, Uncle Iroh and Zuko prepare tea in the Earth King's reception room. Zuko wonders what's taking the Earth King so long, and Iroh wonders if he overslept. Suddenly, a group of Dai Li agents enter the room and surround them. Azula follows in Earth Kingdom garb, revealing that she's not only in Ba Sing Se, but also leading the Dai Li. Have you met the Dai Li? She asks her uncle and Zuko. They're earthbenders, but have a killer instinct that's so firebender. I just love it. I hate that line, by the way. It drives me nuts. Which, which one? They're earthbenders, but they have a killer instinct. That's so firebend. I hate, I hate it. It's such a teenage line. I what hate do you hate it. about it? I just like, it's so. It's so. It's so firebender. No, it's. <laughs> I think this is one of those few instances where I think this line to me is just kind of lazy writing because she isn't your typical teenager so to write her in that like even in jest as that typical teenager just feels inauthentic to me i get what you're saying but at the same time she hangs out with may and tylee who are more teenagery than she does so she probably has moments where she almost like emulates their behavior or has moments where she says stuff that another teenager would say and then she gets back to her okay like i i could see like may saying this line pretty easily 
with that like kind I of to either may or tylee i feel like tylee would just be a little bouncier and a little <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't i don't think she really cares as much for killer instincts though as well yeah no you know? but yeah i don't know it's something about the writing of it and the delivery of it i was just like this is very cringe for me and i was like yeah Ugh. Well, it's a good thing it's followed up by an incredible moment with Iroh, because at this point, he calmly picks up his cup of hot tea and says, did I ever tell you how I got the nickname the Dragon of the West? Azula, assuming he's about to tell one of his long stories, says, I'm not interested in a lengthy anecdote, uncle. But Iroh replies, it's more of a demonstration, really. He begins drinking his tea. Next to him, Zuko looks over and smirks knowingly. Zuko ducks behind his uncle, who unleashes a huge breath of fire at the surrounding Daili agents. Uncle and Zuko use the fire and distraction to break through a wall and escape down the corridor. When they reach the outer wall of the palace, Iroh jumps through the hole they create, but Zuko hangs back. Come on, you'll be fine, Iroh calls from the ground. No, I'm tired of running, Zuko calls back. It's time I faced Azula. Zuko turns around and walks back down the corridor and Iroh smacks his head. (laughs) There was um, supposed to be a much more elaborate scene of them breaking out that involved lightning generation from Iroh, but they had to cut it. <gasps> yeah, they had to cut oh, it for tragic. time and budget constraints, which is really a bummer. But yeah, I would have really liked to see that. That would have been so cool. Thankfully, there's other moments. Yeah, that's true. But I don't know. More lightning, the better, especially if it's coming from Iroh. That's what I, I mean. I say. We're going to get some lightning in this episode, but yeah, maybe not in the way that you no, want. No, we're not. <laughs> We're not. There's also Greg Baldwin was credited in here as additional voices again. Oh, there were definitely moments in this where he was voicing Iroh. I heard the difference. Like it was wild. In the earlier episodes, I couldn't really tell this one. I don't remember what lines they were off the top of my head, but there were a couple where I was like, that's Greg Baldwin. Interesting. I wonder why. Like what changed in his performance? (laughs) It's the accent. There are some times where he yeah. really like lays that accent on thick that uh, Mako had. And then there are other times where he I think he might have gotten a direction to not be so thick on it or to like maybe he was a little yeah. self-conscious about it or, you know, because if you lay it on too thick, it can be very insensitive. Like that's just how he talked. But to emulate that yeah. doesn't really bode well. And we all know that Avatar was a little bit ahead of its time with the realization of it has to be respectful to the cultural her- heritage that they're deriving from. So yeah. I think it was yeah. that. But yeah, there's a couple times where I was like, yep, that's that's definitely that's Greg. Yeah. And at least to me, I think it weirdly works because in the story, Zuko and Uncle have been spending so much time in Ba Sing Se, which is a different nation. It's a yeah. different part of the world. So I imagine that to some extent, they might start sounding like the people who live there and they lose any accents that they may or may not have. So I think it works in the in the way of the story. But mm-hmm. it was also a gradual shift from Mako to Greg that yeah. it's not so jarring on the ears and you yes. don't notice it unless you're really paying attention to it. Yeah. And I think everyone remembers what happens with Iroh in book three. So I think that also can contribute to a slight change in the voice as well. Yeah. Yeah. But really, this is one of my favorite episodes of Iroh because we've heard that he's the Dragon of the West a couple times, but we didn't know what the meaning of that nickname was. And here we're able to see it. He can breathe fire like a dragon. Yeah. And that's this is the second time I think we've seen him do this because the first time was when he was kidnapped by the Earth Kingdom soldiers, if I remember correctly. He talks about being the dragon of the West there. I don't know if he breathes fire. It has been so long. I I don't remember. He He could. Maybe I'm wrong, but. I felt like he did, but he didn't like say that was why they called him that. He just like did it. It's really the line that makes this moment. (laughs) Yes, for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Zuko meets Azula and her group of Dai Li agents not far down the hall. You're so dramatic, Azula tells him. What, are you going to challenge me to an Agni Kai? This was exactly what Zuko was going to do. <laughs> because he says, yes, I challenge you. And in the best delivery, Azula's like, no thanks. No, I'm good. I'm good, actually. Thanks for the thought. Not taking no for an answer, though, Zuko unleashes a wave of fire at his sister, but it's blocked by an earth wall bended by her Dai Li agents. They use their rock gloves to pin Zuko's hand and foot to the ground, and the prince is captured. This goes to show you a lot about Azula's personality that we already kind of figured and kind of knew, but it just reinforces it. She has no honor. Yeah. And she gets that from her father. It's very interesting. So her brother is obsessed with his honor and thinks that defines Mm -hmm. him and needs to get it back and, and kind of ties it to his father, who is honorless. And that trait or that personality has kind of rubbed off on his daughter. Whether that be through nature or nurture, that's up to you, your own personal headcanons. I think it's a little bit of both. But, you know, it's very interesting to see how much Zuko is like Iroh and how much Azula is like their father. I love that contrast. It makes the characters so much more interesting and their interpersonal relationships so much more interesting. But you're right. This is an episode where we really see Azula flexing her skills, not just firebending, but also her political maneuvering. Yeah. She is in rare form and it is so good to watch. Yes. In the throne room, Toph, Aang, and Sokka meet with the Earth King about their concerns over Katara's well-being. Katara is fine, the king tells them. You have nothing to worry about. Aang is still troubled by this news, though, because of his vision. The king tells them that Katara has been with the Kyoshi warriors ever since her meeting with the war council. Believe me, says the king, if there is any danger at all, Bosco's animal instincts would sense it. Would they, though? Because he's like napping. He's just napping next to the king. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think this uh, just bear, not a bear hybrid, maybe doesn't have all of the animal instincts the king thinks he does. Yeah, it's really really funny in this moment, too, because bosco's sleeping and then he says you know bosco's animal instincts then kind of bosco looks at him and he's just like what animal instincts (laughs) yeah such a good moment the gang leave the palace to go back to their apartments in the upper ring where they find momo and some construction still underway they don't find katara but they do find someone Toph met on the road uncle iroh hey ang and Sokka are shocked that they know each other Toph explains how they met and then iroh tells them about azula The group realizes that she's captured not only Prince Zuko, but also Katara. Aang agrees to work together to save them both. When Sokka protests, Iroh insists that there is good inside Zuko. Why don't you come back when it's outside him too, okay? Says Sokka. Aang convinces his friend that if they work together, they'll be able to save Katara as well as the city of Ba Sing Se. Uncle tells them he brought someone with him to help and reveals that he's captured a Dai Li agent. It's our best friend. Scarface. Scarface. (laughs) Scarface tells them about Azula's and Longfang's coup to overthrow the Earth King. Katara is being kept in the crystal catacombs of old Ba Sing Se, deep underground. This moment is super interesting because we have Iroh kind of thrown into Team Avatar for the first time. And he's he's not on Team Avatar just yet. Him and Zuko are kind of their own team. But we are, are seeing this dynamic with Iroh talking to Aang and everyone kind of like being cool with each other and, and accepting for the most part. And even though Sokka kind of like will always have his suspicions, it's just kind of like it was weird for me to watch this, I think, where I'm just like, yeah, they're separate. Like they've been like fighting so long, but they're like 
they're not the same story, but they are the same story. And this is that first moment where we're seeing this team fully form. Yep. It's weird because like they're the same, but they're different yeah. at the same time. They're same, same, but different. Same, same, but different. That's what I was just going to yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's because Iroh is first and foremost loyal to Zuko and is going to support and follow and help Zuko in whatever way he can. But if Zuko was not in the picture, Iroh is the kind of person who would absolutely team with Team Avatar. Because I think that their ideals and their philosophies and their goals in life really are the same. They're shared by Iroh. Oh, yeah. And don't forget about the White Lotus, too. Like the Order of the White Lotus. Like it's pretty much there for the Avatar. So and he's the head or at least high up on it. Yeah, one of the Grand, grand Masters. Yeah, yeah. If, yep, I, if yep. I use Final Fantasy X terms. Grin. <laughs> grand you, you know how I know you're writing a book about Final Fantasy X? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Final Fantasy X verbiage and terms come out. <laughs> happens more than you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I do want to talk about the Crystal Catacombs, though, because I've mm. mentioned this before when we first got to Ba Sing Se, but prior to the development of Ba Sing Se as a large metropolis... It was a small underground settlement carved out of the rocks by earthbenders. As the earthbenders excavated further, they discovered the beautiful glowing crystals and began to mine them. These glowing crystals are now used as a common light source in the Earth Kingdom, as we've seen. And eventually, the city expanded above ground, leaving the crystal catacombs empty. Although no one lives there today, the ancient underground city of stone still stands. Hmm. I love that concept, how... Similar to the badger moles being the origin of earthbending, the first settlement in Ba Sing Se was underground. That's really cool. It makes sense. It does. And, and it's one of those small things where it's, you're not paying attention, you'll miss it, but it really does reinforce this whole consistent origin, which is, again, a small detail that you need for a successful world building, which is what yep. Avatar succeeds at. Um, I think it was Brian was uh, Brian Cadesco was kind of head of overseeing the look and tone of the crystal caves. And uh, it's not like he was a real stickler for how they need to look. He cited a couple different anime as reference to what he wanted. And they really got the tone down that he wanted. He didn't want the crystals to look washed yeah. out. That was a common thing that would happen. He wanted them to be very vibrant. And they kind of did that by making the crystals a little lighter than they should be. And the caves a little darker than they should be. Yeah. And that kind of gave it that like pop look that you'll that you'll see with the crystals. Yeah, that's really echoed in the art book, too. There yeah. was a section about the crystal caves, the crystal catacombs and the crystal armor that Aang forms around himself later yeah. in this episode. Brian was very specific about that. Like yep. he sketched it out. He pointed to and like blocked out what the lighting would be doing on the crystals, like how it would appear and how it would move. And so he definitely had a very specific vision. And so I'm not surprised that he gave references and direction to make it look as good as it turned out to look. Yeah, he he's much better at giving direction than I am. For uh, If everyone remembers the Tales of Bossing's episode, I took over editing for one part because I was just like, I need to do this, Rob. This is my part. <laughs> and he was like, fine. <laughs> that part Let was me the, just do it myself. The IRO part. I was like, I can describe it to you or I'll just do it. That, that's, how, that's, that's my management style. Just give it to me. Yeah. I got it. I can't delegate yeah. for the life of me. 
Well, I think for really important scenes or parts of the story, Brian and, and Michael do have a very clear vision where it yeah. is easier for them to do it themselves. Yeah. And I think it really helps them, as we've mentioned before, with them coming from an animation background. So they actually can, to some extent, do like a turnaround, a character turnaround or concept art or even like a little bit of storyboarding, being able to show the animators and the directors what they're trying to get across. Yeah. Leaning on their past expertise to kind of get the the idea across. Maybe that's why you're supposed to climb your way through the ranks and not just be the boss on day one. (laughs) Helps, right? Yeah. Across the city, one of Long Fang's agents checks in with him. The Fire Nation princess is cooperating, Long Fang asks. Oh, yes, more than cooperating. She's really taking charge. She's terrifying and inspirational all at the same time. Long Fang considers this news from within his cell as the agent walks away. This is the first little indication of the game that Azula is playing. Yeah. Yeah. Long Fang thinks he's in charge because in his mind, Azula is just like a helpless princess that he, with his brilliance and his evil mastermindness, got her to do exactly what he wanted. But really, it's the other way around. And that is another brilliant way that Azula kind of uses her age and her looks to catch her opponents off guard. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Deep underground in the crystal catacombs, Katara paces amongst the glowing crystals. She hears rumbling from above and watches as a hole opens and Zuko comes tumbling down. The two enemies stare at each other in disbelief. Why did they throw you in here? Katara asks. Let me guess. This is a trap. So when Aang shows up to help me, you can finally have him in your little Fire Nation clutches. When Zuko doesn't reply, she continues. You're a terrible person. You know that? Always following us, hunting the Avatar, trying to capture the world's last hope for peace. But what do you care? You're the Fire Lord's son. Spreading war and violence and hatred is in your blood. Zuko looks back at her and tells Katara she doesn't know what she's talking about, which ignites her anger. How dare you? You have no idea what this war has put me through. Me, personally. The Fire Nation took my mother away from me. She breaks down and after a moment, Zuko apologizes and says... That's something we have in common. Read the room, Katara. Jeez. She's just like screaming at him and he's just like standing there not doing anything. He's like hunched down on the ground, like not replying at all. It's like him not replying. She just like pours more salt in the wound. That is Zuko's life at this point. Yeah, man. man, I I love this interaction. It's one of those things. Actually, you know what this reminds me of? What? This encounter reminds me of when Iroh and Toph met each other on the road. Really? Yes, because it's an example of two characters on opposing sides coming together for an interaction that you feel like it wouldn't happen otherwise. Okay. It's this rare moment where you're able to see conflict happen and something interesting coming out of it. We haven't gotten there yet, but just the concept of two enemies coming together, one having been hurt by the other, or at least hurt by their nation, unloading all of the hurt and pain and suffering onto that person as like a receptacle for all of the pain that initially caused it. Mm -hmm. And then that person replying back being like, okay, but same. I've also suffered at the hands of the Fire Nation. It's cool because you come to this really beautiful moment where they almost have a better understanding of each other. And it's just so interesting to watch unfold, similar to how Toph and Iroh met. And Iroh was able to impart wisdom and Toph was able to relate to him in a cool, different way. It's like a pocket world in some case, if that makes any sense. It's like a little moment in time that you wouldn't expect. But when you get it, it feels almost like a gift. 
Yeah, I think my brain didn't go there mainly because Iroh and Toph didn't know they were on opposing sides. When they met, they were just strangers on a road, and that was kind of it. So I wonder if they had known that, if those lessons would have been as prevalent, or if Toph would have even accepted that. Yeah. Versus here, this this to me reminds me more of Song and Zuko. I feel like that's Zuko's pickup line, is he's just like, yeah, the Fire Nations really hurt me too. Yeah, that, that <laughs> Fire Lord really hurt me too it's like well yeah but for different reasons he didn't pillage your land and like take away your your neighbors and all the men and just put them on the forefront as operation distraction essentially but he keeps it always keeps it purposely vague and he doesn't so much in this part at least we'll come to see but yeah just for me when i saw this line i was like that's just his girl pickup line it's yeah me too (laughs) fire nation they suck I mean, you have a point. This is true. (laughs) At the same time, though, I think just from a storytelling perspective, it's almost like one of those, almost like a writing exercise or like a what a brain exercise. Like what if these two people were in a room, like put Julius Caesar and some other historical figure in a room, what would happen? What would they talk about? How would the interaction go? It's like one of those things. Yeah, for sure. Outside the palace, Toph tests the ground with her seismic sense and locates the ancient city. Sokka suggests they split up. Iroh and Aang will look for Katara and Zuko, while Sokka and Toph will go warn the Earth King of Azula's coup. Aang and Iroh set off down a hole in the ground that Toph made, and Aang earthbends as they go to continue the passage. Along the way, Aang asks Iroh for some advice. He repeats what the guru told him about the Avatar state and how he needed to let go of earthly attachments, like love, in order to achieve it. But he couldn't. Perfection and power are overrated, Iroh says. I think you are very wise to choose happiness and love. Aang asks, what if he's not powerful enough to defeat Azula without the Avatar state? Iroh imparts more wisdom. Sometimes life is like this dark tunnel. You can't always see the light at the end of the tunnel, but if you just keep moving, you will come to a better place. With these words, the last stretch of rock is cleared away and the glowing crystal catacombs are revealed. Mike and slash or Brian, everyone knows I can't tell them apart, <laughs> uh, said something that was really funny in this part. And I just want to, sh- I'm going to share it and not do it justice. But I watched the commentary three times. And every time they said this, I cracked up laughing. <laughs> so one of them said he always viewed this scene as the next line Ang was going to say was, I have this friend. He's the avatar. And I would be like, you mean you <laughs> be like, no, no, another avatar. Cause he was very much has yeah. that like little kid energy asking of like for a friend asking for a friend. What if this was my problem? And every time I watch that scene now, I cannot see anything else. <laughs> it's so good. It's so funny. It absolutely has that energy. Yeah. That is so funny. <laughs> you know, I also love the line too, when he starts it by saying, so top things you give pretty good advice and great tea. Yeah. And Ira replies, the key to both is proper aging. <laughs> so good. Such a wholesome interaction. And true. Meanwhile, Sokka and Toph arrive at the palace and witness General Howe getting abducted by Daily agents. All across Bossing say military officials like Howe are abducted. The coup was happening. Sokka and Toph rush to the throne room where they find the Earth King with the Kyoshi warriors. Except it's not Suki and her team, but Tai Lee and Mei in disguise. Mei and Tai Lee attack, forcing Toph and Sokka to fend them off. Anticipating Tai Lee's chi blocking abilities, Sokka dances and dodges out of her grasp while Toph blocks Mei's daggers with Earth. The fight is stopped when Azula appears behind the Earth King with a blue flame held near his head. 
and Tai Lee takes both Sokka and Toph down. They are dragged away with the Earth King and Bosco. That little um, dance scene was choreographed between Brian and uh, Sifu Kisu. Yes, it yeah. was. He, he talked about that. He goes, yeah, we did this little dance. It was really cool. But like, it's really interesting. Whenever Brian talks about anything that he coordinated with Sifu Kisu, he never like goes into much detail versus maybe that's the difference between the two of them. Maybe I've just always viewed him as the same person. And maybe Mike is the one that goes into detail <laughs> and Brian's the one that keeps it vague. No, they're Bright. They are one entity. <laughs> they are the one. <laughs> Bright Dante DeMar Kanetsko. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But yeah, he mentioned that and then he just kind of left it that. I was like, I want to know more. Give me more about this. But yeah. I know. It's so interesting. We've talked about this in a previous episode, just how a lot of these choreographed scenes, they filmed beforehand, like usually Brian, but Brian and Sifu Kisu would act out a scene, whether it was the scene in the tea shop where Jet was fighting Zuko and he like hopped mm. up on a table and slashed and all this stuff. Like they actually choreographed that, yeah. recorded it and then sent it to the animators. So again, this is another example of how they were doing that. But I think it turned out really well because it was really comical to watch so the two of them basically dance across the palace floor. And the the sound effects, too, were on point where I feel yeah. like Sokka was just like, huh? Hmm? Huh? <laughs> or maybe that was just me every time I watched it. I was just making those sounds. That I was didn't your internal realize sound it. effects. That was my internal sound effects. Yeah. Longfang arrives with an army of Dai Li agents and announces that this is the moment he double crosses Azula. But when he orders his agents to arrest the princess, they do nothing. What's wrong with you? Says Longfang. It's because they haven't made up their minds, Azula says from the days. They're waiting to see how this is going to end. She goes on to intimidate him by saying, I can see your whole history in your eyes. You were born with nothing, so you've had to struggle and connive and claw your way to power. But true power, the divine right to rule, is something you're born with. The fact is, they don't know which one of us is going to be sitting on that throne and which one is going to be bowing down. But I know, and you know. Azula goes to sit on the golden throne and Long Fang looks on with sweat trickling down his face. Eventually, he admits that she has beaten him at his own game. Don't flatter yourself. You were never even a player. Yeah, even this is where her brute strength comes in handy, because even if the Dai Li don't come to her defense, Long Fang is not a bender of any kind. That's true. That we know of. Yeah. We never see him bend, so I'm just going to go out on a limb and say he cannot earthbend. Or do any bending. So even if he were to go on a one-on-one -on -one fight, even if he is a skilled martial artist, she is still a better martial artist and she can firebend. Yes. So you can see him like when he's sweating, like weighing what the next options are going to be, what his next move could be. And there's only one. She's won that fight. Yep. And I love the the progression of this scene and watching him get to that point. Yeah. Watching kind of like all the dominoes fall down around him and realizing oh, yeah, I've been outsmarted. Yep. This young girl in front of me has just taken over my kingdom. I do also like that little origin story that we get from him where right? he was born. If anyone's seen the live action Disney's Aladdin, Jafar has a very similar thing where he was just evil Aladdin. It was what they revealed in that movie. And that's kind of what's <laughs> yeah. going on here is he was living off the street and he didn't want to. He wanted more and more and more. So eventually he just kind of like tricked his way and manipulated his way at least into the king's court and then climbed up even further than that and that's as this is as far as he's going to get in his career and yeah. because he was greedy he lost it he could have just stayed in this power forever 
But no, he had to get a little greedy. And it shows that Azula did her homework on him, right? Yeah, for sure. She uncovered his past. And I also have to make a point to talk about Grey Delisle's delivery yes. in this scene. Oh my gosh. Like yeah. chills. I love when Azula has her crazy evil mic drop moments like, don't flatter yourself. You were never even a player. It's like, yeah. well, what really can you good. say to that? She's just on another level. Yeah. I, I wonder if she did her homework on Longfang or if she just read that off of him. I can't tell which is more impressive to me. <laughs> me neither. I don't know if I want I to know the answer were. to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Both would absolutely be. Yes. All right. We have to leave Azula. Back in the Crystal Catacombs, Katara apologizes for yelling at Zuko. She explains that whenever she imagines the face of her enemy, it's Zuko's face that she sees. Zuko touches his scar self-consciously. He tells Katara that for the longest time, he thought his scar marked him. But lately, he's realized that he's free to determine his own destiny, regardless of the scar. Maybe you could be free of it, Katara says. She shows Zuko the vial of water from the spirit oasis that she received from Paku in the North Pole and explains that it has healing properties. She's been saving it for something important and doesn't know if it will work, but she touches his scar and Zuko lets her. I just have to pause here and mm -hmm. talk about this moment. Oh my Please gosh. Do. Yeah. This is what I was talking about, how I love how a scene between two opposing sides starts with conflict and then morphs and travels into this new relationship. Like the fact that they started out the scene as enemies, yeah. long-standing enemies, standing apart from two different nations with Zuko pursuing the Avatar relentlessly and making their life a living hell to now where she would be willing to sacrifice the special water, the spirit water that she was given from a place across the world just to help heal him, not just physically, but also emotionally, says so much. And I love that it got to this point. This is the first time that Zuko has let anyone touch his scar. Yes, that too. It was wild, which I can see the Zutara shippers like. I was just about to say that. <laughs> yeah. I understand it from this scene. I don't agree with it, but I can understand it and I can respect your opinion, but it's canonically wrong. So, agreed. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, sorry. like when she did that, like I had to pause and I was like, wait, is that the first time? And like, I really thought about it. And I couldn't think of another instance. And then when I was watching the commentary, uh, break in my break and break and break. break. Yep. <laughs> just, uh, just roll with it. Break. Break, break said. Break confirmed <laughs> that this is the only time that someone has, at least this far, touched Zuko's scar and he's allowed it. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Do you think that this is what popped into my head? Do you think that Katara reminds Zuko of his mother? That is a great question. And I think yes. I yeah. think ultimately she does. Because we've talked about how she has that mother energy throughout just in Team mm -hmm. Avatar. I mean, we've only seen um, Zuko's mom once so far. So I feel like I hope we get to see a little bit more of her, but I feel like they have similar vibes. So I'm wondering if her touching his scar is kind of like him mentally transposing like his mother doing the same thing. I could see that as being an underlying reason. Like he he accepts the the gesture and the touch because to some extent he kind of gets that feeling from her where she's just wanting to nurture and to heal and to yeah. help. Yeah. Like a mother would, like his mother would. Yeah. And he also refused the first healing from Katara with Iroh. Yeah, true. So I don't know, it just popped in my head. No, great thought. Love it. 
This moment is broken, though, because just then, Aang and Iroh burst through a wall. Katara runs to embrace Aang, and Iroh runs to embrace Zuko. And Zuko and Aang, meanwhile, glare at each other over their shoulders. It's <laughs> like, her, her. I love this. <laughs> I'm watching Aang, you. I'm Zuko. Watching you. It's and so then, her. It's so they just like glare. They're not taking their eyes off of each other. Just like, all right, who's going to blink for it? They're playing like literal, just mental chicken at that point. Love it. Meanwhile, their loved ones are willing to just yeah. ignore the fact that their enemies just walked into the room and they're just happy to see the people that they love. <laughs> Iroh tells Aang and Katara to go help their friends. It's time he and his nephew had a talk. You are not the man you used to be, Zuko, he tells him. You're stronger and wiser and freer than you have ever been. And now you have come to the crossroads of your destiny. It's time for you to choose. It's time for you to choose good. Zuko doesn't have a chance to respond to this, however, because suddenly crystals erupt from the ground and surround Iroh, holding him in place. Azula and a few Dai Li agents appear. It's not too late for you to redeem yourself, she says to Zuko. She urges him to join her in this glorious opportunity for Fire Nation history. He could have his honor back. He could have his father's love back. He would have everything he wants. Iroh warns Zuko that this kind of redemption Azula is offering is not for him. He needs to look into his heart and see what it is he truly wants. I love this scene because it is kind of echoing the first part of Zuko's dream from the Earth King. Yes. It was the dream where Zuko was standing in the dark and there were two dragons coiling around him, almost like an angel and a devil on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One sounding like Iroh, the other sounding like Azula. Literally using their voices. Yeah. 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 It almost makes like a premonition more than a, a dream at this point then. Yeah. Which is interesting to think about. Very interesting. It's almost like the turmoil in his heart was brewing even back then. He knew that there was going to be a moment where he came to a crossroads and he would have to choose between the two paths. Yeah. I wonder if he tapped into the spirit realm a little bit too with that. Ooh, I love that. Maybe. I don't know. It's just like how similar these two are. And the fact that it was Azula's voice for the, the evil dragon versus like his father's or yeah. Zhao's or someone else's. Interesting. Almost like echoes through time. Yeah. Coming back and manifesting as a dream. The beginning is the end and the end is the beginning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Aang and Katara are stopped from exiting the crystal caves when Azula catches up to them. Aang uses a wall of earth to stop a fire blast and Katara goes on the offensive with a giant wave bended from a nearby canal. Azula emerges from their attack and bends fire at them. They block the blast, but more fire appears, this time from Zuko. After a tense moment where it's unclear which side Zuko will fight on, he attacks the Avatar. The fight continues, Aang facing Zuko and Katara facing Azula. The opponents use their terrain and special bending techniques, like an air person and fire whips. Aang drives a stalactite from the ceiling to knock Zuko back. Katara utilizes the octopus technique and disarms Azula with long water tentacles. The tentacles are cut off, however, when Zuko fires a blast at them. I thought you had changed, Katara yells. I have changed, Zuko returns. So much to unpack in this yeah, moment Yeah, this here. is such a good fight scene. Yes. So first of all, this is the first time that we see the water octopus form used in combat. Exactly. We saw Aang like, messing around with it back on um, the Cave of Two Lovers episode, mm-hmm. but now it's used actually in practice katara is able to keep her own 
or hold her own against Azula, which is amazing. Super impressive. It also shows all of that practice and everything that we've been seeing her do in the background is actually paying off. Again, world building, like continuity stuff, really, really yep. cool. Right before, I don't know if anyone caught this too, right before Zuko's betrayal, Aang sees it happening. He reacts before that fire oh, shot what goes a good off. Detail. Like a split second before. It's really cool. Yeah, this is just like such a really interesting way to wrap up the third act of the season finale, which is really, really like I, I just can't. I, I watched the scene so many times and I'm in awe of each time I watch it. The animation was really good. Even the subtle stuff, just everything about it was just A+. plus. Yeah, it felt very fluid. I loved yep. how they changed opponents a couple times throughout the fight very realistically. Yep. We get to see things that we haven't seen before, like that time when Aang projects this like form of a person, but it's made out of air and it mm. knocks Zuko back. Like that was super cool. It's it's neat to see the kids having gone through their experiences and their training and everything that they've gone through on this journey come to this moment and kind of just like duke it out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's also another small moment where Zuko saves his sister. That move he does is the same firebending move that Azula performs in the opening credits. Yeah, I read that. That's so cool. That's so cool. I love it. The fight shifts and Azula faces off against Aang. She uses her blue fire like jets to glide across the ground and knocks Aang back into a wall, the impact shattering the crystal armor he had created around himself. Here's that crystal armor we were talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Brian's uh, crystal baby. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Originally supposed to be rock, but they were like, you know what? There's crystals here. Let's make it a crystal. Crystals would be much cooler. This is cooler. And also it took Brian a really long time to design it for like three seconds. In the right. Fight. <laughs> Across the city in the palace prison, Sokka, Toph, and the Earth King share a cell. Sokka peers out of the metal bars in the door to check if the coast is clear. When he announces it is, Toph, with a kind of gravitas that is every bit warranted to the creator of metal bending, rips the metal door off its hinges. The three prisoners escape. I just love that moment where she, <laughs> she's like leaning against the wall or something off to the side. She's like, is the coast clear? And he's like, yeah. And then she like has that moment in every like show where the hero or like the brawn, like yeah. crack their knuckles, crack yeah. their fingers, and like walk over and then do the thing. And this really amazing execution. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just so like, looks so effortless to her now too, which is really yeah. cool. Like it goes to show again, like we're all obviously super big fans of Toph and like love her to death, but it shows how quick of a study she is where she's like all right yes i can do this thing once and i just it's easy next yeah please. easy next yeah i also love how quay the earth king is like no but bosco <laughs> can't leave bosco to be fair though that's what i would do too yeah rusty <laughs> i can't rusty leave without rusty i can't do it <laughs> yeah so yes they do a little detour and they head over to the throne room where they find may and Ty Lee. Ty Lee is trying to teach Bosco how to walk on his front paws like she did at the circus, but Toph encircles Ty Lee's feet and hands and rocks. Instead of fighting back, May tells him to just take the bear. I love, I love May. She's like, just take him. That's the second time she's done that. Yeah. Where it's just like, I don't care. This is not my fight. <laughs> I don't care. Just take the stupid bear. She only ever really, like, if you think about it, she only ever really jumps into action when Azula is around. If Azula's not around, she's not doing anything that will hurt her or like cause her any additional pain or grief or annoyance. That's a great character detail. You are 100% right. 
Yeah. And I feel like that's so true to her character too. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. like she doesn't bother unless it's really worth it or she has to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's afraid of Azula for sure. So she doesn't want it to fire in front of her, but she could just make up an excuse be like, oh yeah, they just took the bear. And Azula probably isn't going to be like, why? You know, it's just Azula's not like a why kind of person. She's like, a, all right, action. What do we do next kind of person? Yeah. So it's not like Bosco is like the key to the siege or the coup or whatever either. Yeah. I love Bosco. He's so funny. Yeah. His little hat. <laughs> little hat and his little vest. His little vest. He's a fancy bear. He is a fancy bear. <laughs> back in the Crystal Caverns, Azula takes the opportunity of Aang being knocked back to join her brother in attacking Katara. The combination of their firebending knocks the waterbender to the ground, where she's stunned. Aang comes to her rescue by riding an earth wave, however, is knocked to the ground by a Dai Li agent. More Dai Li appear and surround Katara and Aang. Greatly outnumbered and fearing for Katara's safety, Aang creates a crystal cave around himself and goes into a meditative trance. He faces his cosmic self once again, knowing that he must let Katara go in order to reach the Avatar state. His arrow glows and he breaks out of the crystal cave in full avatar power. As he rises into the air, a bolt of lightning collides with him, electrocuting him and breaking off his connection to his cosmic self. He falls to the ground and is caught by Katara. Yeah. So three things, I think. We'll see if I can count today. When everyone gets kidnapped back in the palace, that is... Remember last episode, I was talking about how they always just seem to forget about Momo? And yes. it's always an aftersight. <laughs> this is exactly it, where he gets caught by those rock gloves. They're like, oh, what do we do with Momo? Oh, yeah, rock gloves. Boom. Yeah, it's like two seconds. Yeah, that's how they solve that issue. The other thing is Brian and Michael, or Brike, as we affectionately call them now, talk about how Aang's inexperience with the Avatar state is what causes downfall here. Yes. Where what you're supposed to do is enter the Avatar state, be all glowy and impressive for like a second and then like get out of that form and do what you have to do. He like yeah. really like indulged in it and was like, he was like super saying for way too long and where everyone in the past has been like, whoa, it's so impressive. It's so cool. Azula, who is not so easily impressed because she's obsessed with perfection. So this just might look sloppy to her, sees the opportunity and takes it in Azula fashion. Yeah. And exactly Azula fashion. So if he had stayed with Guru Patik, this would not have happened. He would have been able to practice. Exactly. Yeah. This is also another instance where a lot of people who wrote into us about crystal bending and stuff like that. I have said this before. I'll say it again. I'm still not convinced that Boomy is or is not the only one that can bend creeping crystals. For me and my brain, creeping crystals are different than the crystals in this cave. Yeah. They don't move. I would agree. They're just there. They're just there. Also, they're not rock candy. So there's also that. <laughs> yeah, they creep and they're supposed to be edible. I yes. don't think these crystals in this cave are the same. I mean, anything's edible if you just put your mind to it. <laughs> Forbidden candies. It's, it's not true. Don't do, don't do that at home, kids. Don't eat anything. It's not food. <laughs> please, please. But yeah, so like that was a couple of things that popped out. Also, really cool little detail on the animation end. Uh, you might may or may not have noticed Lightning, when it enters the body, needs to have an exit. That's how it goes. It runs through yeah. your body. So it went into Aang's back and out of his foot and it blew off his shoe. So he's missing a <sighs> shoe when he gets out of that. And you can see the exit wound in his foot. It's really Brilliant. Cool. What a great detail. Because yeah. that's absolutely true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is like, <laughs> Brike was like, 
I've never been struck by lightning personally, but as I understand it, this is what happens. <laughs> yes. It's like, thanks. No, it's true. Same thing with like people who are being electrocuted by like fences or something. Yeah. Because you're a closed circuit, like if you put both hands, for instance, on the fence, you can't move because mm-hmm. the circuit is just running through your body over and over, yep. which is why you have to break it by using something that doesn't conduct electricity like cloth or something. Yeah. So actually, this is a total random aside, but nice piece of life advice. If you ever see someone who's getting electrocuted, usually they you can't tell. They're not convulsing. They're usually standing very still and very tense. Don't touch them because the electricity will go through you. Instead, use like a T-shirt or something that's fabric and like loop it around their neck or something and pull them off. I actually saw someone save another person's life in a video from Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, some other country. And it was incredible. It was very fast thinking, but it happens more than you think. So there's some life advice for you. Remember your lessons from Team Rocket and Pokemon. Just wear some rubber gloves and get them off the electricity. (laughs) Yep. That's how I learned how to not get electrocuted. Pokemon. No, I'm just kidding. Pokemon. The last thing about the scene, too, is when Katara catches Aang. It's very reminiscent and very mirroring of the first or, yeah, the first episode of The Boy in the Iceberg when she pulls him out of the iceberg and, like, is holding him. So we have that kind of, like, full circle moment. Very true. I also read that the positioning also greatly resembles La Pieta, a famous sculpture of the Virgin Mary holding Jesus after he was brought down from the crucifix. Super interesting. Super interesting. Huh. Katara holds Aang's limp body in her arms and is given a moment to escape when Iroh appears. He holds off the Daily agents long enough for her to flee with Aang. As soon as they escape up a waterfall, he stops and allows himself to be captured by the Daily agents. He and Zuko share a meaningful glance until Iroh looks away in disappointment. Yeah. Oof. It's a small thing, but it's really interesting actually how he literally holds them off until they escape. And then he stops bending. He presses his hands down in the finishing move and just stands mm-hmm. there and lets himself get captured. And after that, he looks over at his nephew, almost like, I can't believe you've done this. Like, look mm-hmm. what you've done. And then literally looks away and down in disappointment. And I think that action is really what starts digging at Zuko, because we're going to see in the next scene that he's really broken up about what happens here between him and Iroh. Yeah. What I found, yes, absolutely. What I found super interesting about that scene is that Iroh could have definitely gotten away as well if he wanted to. Oh, yes. So absolutely could have. Even though he has this great disappointment now in his nephew, he still can't bring himself to leave his side. Zuko's number one. Number one priority. Wild. It's just like the devotion, the loyalty. Yeah. Crazy. The gang leave Ba Sing Se on Appa, and Katara uses the water from the spirit oasis to heal what she can of Aang's wounds. When she pulls him forward, the rest of the group can see just how bad his wounds are. The spirit water sinks into the deep wound and Aang's arrow glows, and he wakes up. Back in the throne room of Ba Sing Se, Azula sits on the throne with Zuko by her side. We've done it, Zuko. It's taken a hundred years, but the Fire Nation has conquered Ba Sing Se. Zuko is troubled by his betrayal of Uncle Iroh. Azula reassures him that he made the right choice. When they return home, Father will welcome him as a war hero. But the doubt remains. Zuko wonders aloud if their father will actually restore his honor, even without the Avatar. He doesn't need to, Zuko. Today, you restored your own honor. Well, if I had known I could do that this whole time, I wouldn't be here. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
Man, Azula's so good at pushing Zuko's buttons. Like she yeah. knows exactly what to say to either drive him to action or to reassure him to stay by her side. It's so good. I think this line was her undoing, though. I feel like. Today you restored your own honor? Yeah, because A, he knows he didn't. He feels it. He feels yeah. that he did not. Probably because A, he feels worse than he did before his actions, or B, he doesn't feel any different, which makes him probably feel worse in the long run. Yeah, because it's not the honor that Iroh believes in. It's not the kind of honor that Iroh would counsel him about. Also, right. going back to what you said about Azula not having any honor, how telling is it that she said this here because she doesn't understand honor? Right. She's just saying it like, whatever, you restored your own honor. But you're right. I think that was the line that was her downfall, because that's the line that sticks with Zuko into season three, as we are going to see. Yeah. You know what? I just kind of made this connection. Azula has heavy, geez, what's her name? The mom from Arrested Development vibes. Oh my God, she does. She does. <laughs> the grandma? The grandmother, yeah. So like, yes. and then unfortunately, um, she did just die. So that was really sad, but. Oh, I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah. She's like 80. She died in her sleep. So it was super sad. And she was yeah. a very wonderful woman is what I've been reading. But yeah, like that whole line of, it's only a banana. How much could it cost, Michael? $10? Right. Uh, that's what she's, that's Azula with, with honor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's only honor. It's only honor. You restored it. Move you restored on. it yourself. What is it? It only costs $10. Yeah. Oh, it's I love so that funny. parallel. That's so funny. <laughs> we have one final scene back yeah. on Appa. Aang's life is restored, but as Team Avatar flies away on Appa, the Earth King looks down at the city of Ba Sing Se and notes that with the loss of the metropolis, the Earth Kingdom has fallen into Fire Nation hands. That's just like the theme of the season, I feel like. It's just what? the Fire Nation just taking over Earth Kingdoms. Oh, yeah. This, I mean, book two, Earth. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, but like, I don't know. It feels almost full circle again, where in the beginning of book two, we noted that Omashu was taken over as new Ozai. Yeah. So now yeah. we're seeing Ba Sing Se fall into the Fire Nation's hands as well. So it's another like connected circle, like right events come to fruition. So it's very interesting. They uh, sure are persistent. That's yes, to be sure. They absolutely are. But with that, that is our finale. That is the yeah. end of book two. Wow. We're here. I actually, I just had the same moment. I was like, whoa, <laughs> wait, this means we're done with book two. This means hair on Aang. This means a hair on Aang. I feel very weird about still. I never get over that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my gosh. Well, before we get into what we're going to do next, who was your MVP? Uh, my MVP is Iroh. I don't even have to think about oh, it. 100%. Yes. It's absolutely Iroh. His whole story in this episode is very heartbreaking, like the whole time. And he never wavers. He never really loses his composure. He just does what he knows he needs to do next. And when the time comes to either continue his journey with Zuko or to forsake his nephew, because it was a huge betrayal on Zuko's part. Yeah. He chooses to, to stay with his nephew and not abandon him, which is very telling of his personality and is just like heartbreaking. Yeah. I really think this episode illustrates Iroh's characterization so well because he's like constantly straddling this moral ground where he's trying to get Zuko to cross over with him, but he isn't. So he's he's maintaining his position. He's trying to like 
help in both directions, right? Because he helped yeah. Katara in the Avatar escape because he knows the world needs the Avatar. He can't yep. let Aang get captured by Azula or the Fire Nation. But at the same time, he can't abandon his nephew. So he's just the way that he navigates those situations is so masterful. And it's such a great illustration of who he is as a person. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can't even think of a runner up, to be honest, in, the, in this one for me. Like may, yeah. maybe no. Azula, <laughs> because all of her plans, like it all came together exactly how she thought it would. Yeah, Azula is incredible. She's so good at being bad and it's to the point where, okay, this is where, Greg, where I will say that I love to hate Azula. I love yep. her and I hate her because she's so good at being bad. And it's that kind of writing that makes me really kind of root for the character. I don't want her to win, yeah. but I'm rooting for her moments where she's able to like flex her powers. Yeah, I still don't like her. My mind is not changed on her yet, but I reserve the right to change it later. But I don't know. Every time, it's just she's a great villain. Don't get me wrong, but I just don't mm -hmm. like her. I always like characters with redemption arcs. And that's why I like Zuko so much. That's why I like Iroh yeah. so much, right? Like they know they were flawed and they're working towards it. And that to me, no matter, well, for the most part, no matter what they do, I can kind of get over that because of that evolution versus yeah. Azula, who's just taunting her brother using like doing what she is known to do and what she does so well. It just doesn't sit right with me, which I think is great writing. Yeah. Exactly. Where you can dislike a fictional character so much. Definitely an example of good writing. And don't yep. worry, we have a lot more Azula to come in book three as well as the comics. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to um, the friend group that she has in what happens with them. Yes. I'm very excited yes. about that. Yeah. All right. What about your moral of the episode? Uh, this one I'm less sure of. Well, we can uh, switch roles and I can go first yeah, this time. Please. Yeah, okay, I see you wrote it down. <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> You're peeking. You're ruining it. Oh, no. It's actually a line that Iroh says, and it really stood out to me because I think it's just a great moral in general. Perfection and power are overrated. A wise person chooses happiness and love. Yes, that's a great moral. I don't know if that's what I pull out of the episode, but that is like so good. I'm going to say for me... I think the episode is never over or underestimate anyone. Ooh. We saw Longfang underestimate Azula. Mm -hmm. We saw Iroh overestimate Zuko and his ability to be a good person. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's not entirely fair because after so many years of trying to obtain a goal, you can't just have one fever dream and then have it go away. Like that desire that makes it a little more realistic. That's true. Yeah. Which it, it know, is kind of annoying. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of annoying that like they made this whole big spectacle of him healing and evolving from a I almost had a caterpie into a butterfree. <laughs> I got Pokemon <laughs> on my day. I don't know why. I haven't played in forever. Uh, going from a caterpillar to a butterfly, and then they kind of like go back on it in this episode. But again, like it's you have this goal that you can now obtain, and it was yeah. unattainable before. So I don't. I feel like his transformation was part of the test. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I like it, though, because transformations always take time. They take a lot yeah. of little baby steps. And I think the conflict of this episode being Iroh urging Zuko, like, you're there. You're right there. Please make the right decision. Choose the path towards the good side. Yeah. And then Zuko not because he's not completely over his past trauma. He's not over his 
ties and insecurities to his honor and his father and his in the fire nation like i think it's super realistic and it's it was cool to see because you're rooting for Zuko to make the right choice and then he doesn't. And so now yeah. it's all about what does that mean? Is yeah. he ever going to get there? Yeah. And honestly, I can't see this book ending any other way than That's true too. Yeah. Having all these expectations build up to this moment and then they shatter them immediately. Everything is shattered. Yeah, I mean, the, the story of Aang is quite literally a three-act story, right? Like most stories are. But yep. they, they've managed to so wonderfully do it, kind of like Star Wars does it in the original trilogy, where it's kind of like, all right, we got our build-up, it's kind of kiddie and fun, everyone's having a good time, and book two, or movie two, is the mature one, quote-unquote. Yeah, things get serious. Get serious, they get dark, they don't go quite as you would think. And I really love when that kind of happens in a story, because... That's where the growth happens. And yeah. the response to that growth, I believe, is what we're going to see in book three, which I'm very excited about. Yes, me too. Yeah. So coming up next time, it's book three. We're done, except for the recap episode. That's right. Yep. So just again, I know I've said this a couple of times. Same thing as last book. We're going to come back with an episode. We're going to watch the entire book two this week. And we're going to yep. come back. We're going to talk about, I don't remember what we talked about last week. I'm going to listen to that episode and remember what we talked <laughs> Me about. Me too. That'll be our homework. That'll be added on to the homework. And we'll, you know, we'll talk about the overarching theme of book two. We'll talk about our MVP for book two. It cannot be yep. the same MVP as book one. We are adding the nope. stipulation in. We'll hit the books and see who everyone's favorite MVP was from this book that was written in and many, many other wonderful little things. Yeah, we're going to dive into the commentaries and the featurettes and talk about any other little nuggets of information we haven't covered already or just revisit the ones that really stood out to us that we want to tie into our season two recap. So a lot to look forward to. We're excited to recap book two with you all and talk about our journey going forward into the Fire Nation. Yes. And in the meantime, if you don't want to rewatch the entire book two with us, remember, you can always join me over at twitch.tv slash Booster Craig on Monday and Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. As right now, if you're listening to this episode right when it came out, Friday might be a little late because the Rob Logan and myself are doing an invincible watch party over at twitch.tv slash the geek generation. And it's a lot of fun. We covered the first three episodes already because they got released at the same time. It's such a good show. I'm very excited about it. A lot of the same voice actors. Clancy Brown shows up in there. Gray Delisle Griffin shows up in there as well. He Azula. It's the perfect casting for her other than Azula. It's really cool. So come on, hang out over there. Awesome. And I'm Acorn Bandit. You can find me online at Acorn Bandit and also on Joysons.com where I create enamel pins along with this guy here. Yes. Yes. Oh, I forgot to. I'm on TikTok too. I have like eight videos up. So yeah, that's right. You can find me there, kids. That was weird. Anyways. <laughs> you can check out my pins on joysons.com. That's J-O-I-S-A-N-S.com. And the rest of my stuff, if you tack on a slash pages slash acorn, I have all of my links right there. Mm-hmm. Thank you again for listening. If you have any thoughts to share about this episode or any thoughts about book two, really, feel free to write us at avatar the podcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at podcast avatar yes and a reminder i'm going to be saying this for the rest of eternity which is how long our podcast is going to run for 
If you want to help support the podcast in any other way that is not a five-star review or yelling to the heavens that this podcast exists <laughs> and you love it so much, you could always go to patreon.com slash avatar the podcast. Uh, and there are plenty of different ways that you can help support the show monetarily if you want. And if you don't, no worries. Keep on yelling to the heavens because we love that too. Yeah, that's another thing we're going to talk about in the recap. We're going to see who is leading in the 100 year war on Patreon. That's right. Yes. I don't even know. I haven't looked in a little bit. Oh, man. It could be anyone. I don't even know. It could be anyone. It's exciting. I'm not going to look until that episode. So it'll be be a lot of fun. Yep. Awesome. All right. All this and more next time on Avatar Avatar, the the podcast. podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our other podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com.